Hello and welcome to the Customer Insight Leader Podcast. Data, analytics, big data, data science, machine learning, customer insight, behavioral science, blockchain, data ops, data engineering, agile working, phew, too many terms, too many things to think about. Do you as a leader need somewhere to turn, to hear what other leaders are doing, to hear what really makes a difference in your business? Welcome. The Customer Insight Leader Podcast is here for you. Each episode, we'll be interviewing a different leader in the fields of customer insight, data, and analytics to hear what they really do, what really makes a difference. So settle down, get that cup of coffee, and enjoy the Customer Insight Leader Podcast. Hello and welcome back to season two of the Customer Insight Leader Podcast, a place to hear from today's leaders in the fields of data, customer insight, data science, and AI. As I shared in the preview episode for this season, a new emphasis for these conversations is we'll be digging deeper into some of those all-important softer skills and the commercial skills you need to be successful in this field. I'm your host, Paul Lockton, and with me today is Tony Saldana. Tony is currently the CEO and co-founder of Inixia, a global standards and certification body for the shared services industry. Before that, he ran Procter & Gamble's famed multi-billion dollar global business services division and IT operations for every region across the world. So more than any other guest, he comes to us with a wealth of commercial and senior leadership experience. Importantly, Tony's also put his time into educating others and is the author of two excellent books, one on leading digital transformations called Why Digital Transformations Fail, and more recently, he's co-authored a new book, Revolutionising Business Operations, How to Build Dynamic Processes for Enduring Competitive Advantage. Now, both of Tony's books really impressed me um, as I reflect in my book reviews, if you look on customerinsideleader.com, my blog, you'll find those glowing views there. And what I liked about them was they provide clear, simple models, a framework that guides all the structure of content in the book, but then bring those models to life with real world stories, war stories, if you like, of delivering that kind of change in the messy worlds of complex business. So even though Tony's a little bit different for guests on this podcast, he hasn't spent the majority of his working life as a data analytics or insight leader, I do believe he brings an important perspective that we need to hear, especially with his latest book, which challenges us to focus not just on product innovation, but just as much on improving processes. So that's a very relevant opportunity for every data leader I know. So I'm delighted that Tony could join us for this conversation. Welcome, Tony. Thank you, Paul. I'm really pleased to be with you. Great. And you're joining us from Cincinnati today, I believe? I am indeed joining you from uh, uh, a somewhat chilly uh, Cincinnati. Um, we've um, we've had a run of very cold weather here, and uh, I wish um, I could be with uh, your global listeners who may be in more warmer climates. Um, <laughs> but you know, here we go. Here we go, indeed. Well, I, I feel for you. I suspect it's not quite so cold here in Wales. But for anyone who's in sunny climes, in, enjoy the fact the temperature is a bit warmer with you. Tony, great to have you with us. With um, all my guests on these podcasts, I like to start by asking them to give us their backstory, if you like, so listeners understand the experience they're drawing on, where they're coming from with the perspective that they share. 
So in time-oriented fashion, let's let's start that way. Can you tell us, Tony, your career story? How have you got to the work that you do today? Oh, happy to, Paul. Um, look, Paul, I, I feel like I'm uh, um, extremely fortunate to have you know grown up with the evolution of the IT and the shared services industry. Um, I uh, spent 27 years uh, with Procter & Gamble um, in you know, all different parts of the world. Sure. Uh, and then about um, you know, four or five years prior to that and, and five years since there. Um, but you know, I, I grew up at the time when IT and then of course data and shared services, which is the other parts of my experience, mm. um, were in their infancy. Um, mm -hmm. I set up the first ever shared services organization in the Philippines in uh, 1992, which uh, goes to tell you how old I am. Um, <laughs> but then I was also I uh, a CIO for Procter & Gamble mm -hmm. uh, India in uh, 1995 to 1998. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, after different assignments in, in, in um Singapore, uh, the Philippines, uh, Geneva, so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, I ended up with uh, Procter & Gamble here in uh, Cincinnati. Um, so the interesting backstory there is that, um, you know, when, when I started my career, IT and data and analytics and shared services were the back office of um, the back office, so to speak, right? Yeah, we yeah. were quite literally at the headquarters here in Cincinnati, tucked off somewhere in the basement of the headquarters um, mm -hmm. from there to the world today, where mm -hmm. digital transformation, data, analytics, AI, global business services, shared services are the number one enabler of the number one priority of most boards of directors, which is yeah. digital transformation. I think that's been an incredible journey and I'm really fortunate to have uh, being able to experience this in real time as it was happening. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. And when we spoke before, I was I was intrigued because when I first invited you onto the show, Tony, it was very much on the basis of your your book, your vision for process revolutionizing, really, um, and and how innovative and continually improving that 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 mindset could be. But I wasn't so aware that you had had some experience of leading data and analytics functions there within, within Procter & Gamble particularly. Um, I, I probably should have guessed, given the breadth of your remits. But I, I'm interested, given that the leadership, the listenership probably to this podcast are mainly coming from data and analytics leadership roles, you've led many different types of functions. You've had that central view from shared services of, of major corporations. I wonder, from your time when you actually had it within your bailiwick, when you were responsible for data and analytics, what did you learn from leading those teams? Did it change your view as to what data and analytics teams really are from when you weren't responsible for them? Oh, indeed, Paul. Um, so there was a period of time, um, I believe this was uh, 2000 and um, maybe 2013 to 15, 16, where I was, among other things, responsible for uh, the global data and analytics uh, capabilities at Procter and Gamble, um, okay. and this was a time when, um, you know, I, I think the world of data and analytics was going from, you know, uh, basically visualizing the data uh, to then starting to get into predictive models, 
-hmm. and then also prescriptive models of decision making. Mm -hmm. And so it was a very exciting time. Obviously, this was pre, you know, the AI boom and, you know, so on and so forth. Um, But even at that very early time, um, you know, I had this very strong feeling that the the next industrial revolution, so to speak, right? So if we Mm -hmm. speak in terms of industrial revolutions with the Mm -hmm. First one being, you know, steam engines, the second one being yeah. electricity, the third one being the internet, the fourth yeah. industrial revolution being data. Um, it was very evident to me that data and analytics um, was going to be at the center of the fourth industrial revolution because quite literally every product or process work that was happening in the company mm-hmm. was going to be dramatically affected by not just the insights, not just the visualization, mm. but by potential decision-making, automation of decisions mm. that could come out of data and analytics. So um, my big learning at that point in time was that um, for the future of businesses to be healthy, um, businesses and therefore the data and analytics organizations had to transform themselves pretty significantly within a short period of time from viewing the work of data and analytics as a supportive capability to essentially being the driver of transformational change, i.e., you know, coming up with entirely new business models, a business models as in the way you sell your products or business models as in the way you operate your internal operations, whether it's finance or supply chain or whatever it is. All of them had to be transformed with analytics as the core engine, which is actually a very exciting time. And and it still continues to be. I think, you know, for your audience that works in this area, you're lucky. You actually happen to be at the core of the biggest change in history. That's great, great, great call to the the, the size of the opportunity. I, that that rings true, and it rings true from from what I see from my experience as well, Tony. I guess some of the frustration I'd feel from my tribe, if I call if I call them that, is that with all the excitement that there is around the potential of AI, generative AI, and and automation in in such changes, a lot of those boards, a lot of the senior leadership team don't get that they'll have to invest and sort the data foundations out. They think somehow they can kind of just decide to get with the program now, hire some whizzy data scientists, and tomorrow we can start building these AI models and and get the change in. And they're not recognizing the data quality, the data infrastructure, the amount of groundwork that will need to be done on data in order to have the raw materials necessary to really deliver those exciting use cases they potentially see. Do you see the same, Tony, or do you think people are waking up to the fact that the data needs to be sorted and that's a prerequisite? Um, it is happening slowly. Um, but, you know, Paul, um, we need to be very honest. Um, I don't think it is really the job of these boards of directors, these senior leaders, and so on and so forth to mm-hmm. understand the nuts and bolts, the, the mm-hmm. wiring of how analytics works, right? Um, so um, I tend to view this challenge a little differently. Okay. I think of this as an opportunity for us, the tribe of data analytics, um, 
you know, people to educate, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and not to get frustrated when, mm -hmm. you know, we get what seems to be conflicting signals from senior leaders, conflicting signals in the sense that, yes. hey, you know, this is a priority. AI is going to change the world. You know, I need these algorithms. Can you get it done yesterday? And oh, by the way, you, you're not going to have too much funding to do that, right? <laughs> that seems contradictory. Um, yes. But um, but no, I mean, you know, um, that is what you do as a senior leader. You need to transform mm -hmm. the way you're operating your business. But mm -hmm. Wall Street doesn't give you a break uh, to say, mm -hmm. all right, you know, you're going to run at a loss for the next three years while you change yourself. No. So I think it is our job as the practitioners of data and analytics to do two things. One is educate our leaders on the journey, which is, you know, um, uh, separate the hype from the reality. So the hype says AI is here. You can do anything you want. You can, you know, let supply chains run in real time or you can replace, you know, thousands of people in call centers with, you know, voice generated AI. Well, you know, most of that is hype. Some of that is true. Um, the, the, the reality is that you have to build up to that. You have to get the quality raw data. You have to build the models or train the models or mm -hmm. validate the models as the case may be. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, you, you have to do this. So, so number one, our job is to educate people on the prerequisites, but number two, is by education, we don't magically turn our senior leaders into experts on AI, or mm -hmm. we don't magically generate, you know, millions or billions of dollars or pounds or, you know, whatever as the case may be yeah. uh, to do this. So the second part of our job is to roadmap the approach, right? Mm -hmm. And the approach is to... Um, to, to, to not just do a linear, hey, you know, give me the next couple of years to train the models to get the data, but to deliver quick wins, to mm. deliver the wins that actually start to deliver value, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to use some of that value to, to educate our leaders that our job here is to reinvest some of the benefits of that into yeah. a snowball in the use of data and analytics. So that's the second part of our job, which is to come out with very practical steps on how to snowball the capabilities of AI in our organizations. Yeah, com completely agree with that, Tony. Good good advice, both on the, the data literacy side, um, AI literacy, that, that, that aspect, but also the responsibility, both for proactivity and education from, from data analytics leaders, but also to be able to pragmatically pilot, pragmatically have some initial minimum viable products, some initial implementations that quickly start to deliver value. It's it's, it's very much the journey I experienced as a, as a data leader within Lloyd's, that what got the investment, what got the impact that we had was that incremental delivery, was being able to develop the skill to identify relevant so they'd actually care about it, valuable but doable um, use cases that you could start to deliver enough to make a difference to whet the appetite to want more. And I think there is that, there's a game of supply and demand to be played here. You are almost as much wooing as you are intellectually persuading a senior leadership team as to the potential here. Would you agree with that perspective? 
I, I think that's well said. Um, you know, look, the reality is that, um, yes, we work in the data and analytics industry, uh, but we all work in the industry of our respective companies or nonprofits mm. or the governments, as the mm. case may be. In your case, it was Lloyd's. Uh, in my case, it was Procter & Gamble. Um, so we have to be, you know, business leaders first and then yeah. subject matter experts in data analytics or whatever our field is second, right? Mm. Um, and um, the number one frustration of boards of directors and senior leaders is that they see a disconnect between what they're hearing externally on TV, on social media, about the power of these capabilities, analytics, AI, and what they see is the slow pace of change within yeah. the organization. Yeah. Part of this is the credibility gap that exists because you know, we kind of almost get into um, uh, a language translation problem between senior leadership and practitioners because you know, as, 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 as we were talking about earlier, um, it feels like they really don't understand, you know, what we need to do that. But mm. that's not, that's a language translation issue. They very much want to do it. They want to do it yesterday, mm. but they need help to figure out what a practical roadmap is. Um, mm. And that's the incredible opportunity. It is not the technology itself. It is the use cases. It is our respective mm. understanding mm. as mm. data and analytics practitioners of our core business. Again, yes. whether it's Lloyd's or yes. Procter and Gamble, yes. it is the translation of those business issues into use cases. That's our job. You know, building the algorithms and the models is important, but that's secondary to identifying the use cases and implementing the use cases. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the great learning and capability development opportunity in today's environment. Yeah, it's a very, very well made point, Tony. And I think it's true that a lot of analysts, data scientists, you know, learning their craft, their focus can be so overwhelmingly technical. And I've often been encouraging such people to focus a bit more on their domain knowledge, that they really understand the economics of their organization. They really understand the strategic direction and why how they make a difference, how they serve their customer base, what the potential is, what the, the job that people are trying to get done is, that all the bases of understanding that you need for, for innovation and, as you, you say, to understand those use cases. I guess I'm also struck listening to you how much we're, we're kind of also coming back to agile principles, that as much as this is about saying to data leaders, you know, get out of your box and be these proactive communicators and influencers of your, your senior leaders, is this also about getting agile to really work outside of software development, which I still see as a work in progress. It was developed as a methodology for software development, but some of the better data and analytics teams are using that strong understanding of their business to get good at working within the constraints of an agile rhythm and, and sensibly scope descoping in order to reliably deliver and that, that kind of way of working. Do you, similar to me, see Agile and the ability to work that way well as a key part of this? Oh, for sure. No, absolutely, it is. Um, and in fact, um, you know, the framework um, that I uh, espouse, and, and, you know, Philippe, my co-author and I, we get into a little more details into this in the book, yes. Revolutionizing Business Operations. But... Um, they, um, I believe that 
um, the framework for literally any kind of um, business transformation today is a combination of agile, um, the lean startup methodology before yeah. agile, and yeah. then design thinking, which is a step before yeah. lean startup. So you could take quite literally any problem. Um, um, you know, Paul, um, last week when you and I were chatting, I was giving you some examples of um, my own career and the use of data and analytics. Yes. Um, when I had uh, responsibility for um, IT and shared services uh, within Procter & Gamble for the region of um, uh, Central, Eastern Europe, Middle East and Africa. So everything from you know, Russia down to South Africa. Um, within that, um, you know, for the sales organization, um, as anybody that um, is familiar with some of these places, you're not going to find the big stores exclusively, you know, like the Tesco's, mm -hmm. the Carrefour's, mm -hmm. or the Walmart's. Yeah, of course, you will find them. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, about two-thirds of the business is done through small stores and distributors yeah. who sell to sub-distributors who sell to, you know, really, really, really tiny shops. Um, the business issue there is data and analytics, which is the visibility of mm. You know, I sold to a big distributor, but I have no visibility on how that's cascading down the line and yeah. how much of this is just, you know, building up inventory in small stores mm -hmm. so that consumption is never going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason I go back to that example, Paul, you know, in, in answering your question on Agile is because, you know, when you start with the question um, of, all right, so. My issue is lack of visibility of the data as well as models. So if I'm a salesperson selling to a really tiny store in Nigeria mm -hmm. and they wanted, you know, the 50 ml bottle of, you know, whatever, just Pantene shampoo that's not available, you know, what else can the algorithm tell me that I can sell to them, right? Yeah. That's a great use case of data and yes. analytics. Yes. But before you even get into agile and sprint, you know, you start with design thinking, which is to say, all right, you know, what is the user, the store owner in this particular case? You know, what is their problem that I'm trying to solve, right? Yes. Um, and then that leads to lean startup methodology, which is to say, all right, so I need to have two or three hypotheses, right? And then, you know, you develop hypotheses, which is, hey, I don't need to know everything that's happening in the store, but if I can even get three or four metrics, you know, like stock in the stores, um, if I can get that data transmitted, you know, via text messaging, yes. perhaps, I don't need a database there in the store. Um, and then, you know, based on those hypotheses, you start with agile methodology to say, all right, so can I come up with a, you know, quick prototype of an entire system the text uh, message from the store owners gets collected in some distributor location, the distributor that sold them. That distributor perhaps has a little database and you know, I collect all of that from there to a Procter & Gamble, from there into the algorithms, from there into the, the smartphone of our sales rep, you know, from there back to the store owner to say, so you don't have the 50 ML, but you know, perhaps you can sell this, right? And and that's really where the whole cycle of agile, lean startup, and design thinking come together. 
Yeah, it's a very good part of the book, Tony. And I, I haven't heard, read a lot of other people who brought all three together. And I think you, you're right as to the complementary nature of that methodology. A lot of my audience who've got customer insight and customer analytics responsibilities will be really heartened to hear the start with design thinking, the start with that deep understanding of the of the customer and, and what they're trying to get done. So yeah, it's good, good guidance indeed. Another thing you brought up, actually, now you've, you've sparked my memory <laughs> from when we, when we spoke before, was the time when you were responsible for benchmarking the performance of Procter & Gamble shared services, I, I believe, at the time. Um, and you had the sort of aha moment, the eureka moment, if you like, of recognising that your existing benchmarking set wasn't right. It wasn't just about comparing against other big corporate shared services. Actually, there were innovative startups. There were people who were meeting the fundamental needs in a totally different way. So if you're going to not just rest on your laurels of your best in class awards, which you've had many, <laughs> um, but actually drive forward, you needed to rethink who you were benchmarking yourself against. So I guess as, as the next step of our conversation, maybe, given how much we've talked about data and analytics leaders need to know their business and use all the good advice you've given, as to how to help the business be more effective through this identification of use cases. What about this next step of needing to rethink who you benchmark yourself against? How did you have that eureka moment? And what should listeners who have also got responsibility for benchmarking be thinking to maybe critique who they benchmark themselves against? Oh, that's a, a brilliant question. I, I, I love that because I think it kind of goes to the heart of what we were talking about earlier, Paul, which is the tremendous opportunity that exists for practitioners in the data and analytics business, mm -hmm. which is if you're going to change the game, then you, know, you don't want to play on an old playing field. Yes. You want yeah. to design a new playing field. And that's really where benchmarking comes in. So the context there for our listeners was that mm -hmm. um, I think this was perhaps in 2015 or so. Um, uh, the, the ironic dilemma was, you know, if, if IT and shared services at Procter & Gamble is supposed to be the best in class, you know, what is next, right? So what's the next hill to climb? Mm -hmm. um, and and um, the Eureka moment, as, as, as you call it, Paul, mm -hmm. was the realization that, hey, look, um, the real competition for IT or shared services or data and analytics is not so much the respective IT, GBS, or data in another big company, you know, like a Unilever or, um, you know, a, a, a record bank user. Yeah. It is quite literally the startup organization, mm. right? Um, and that's no different than what you would do um, if you were selling products at Procter & Gamble. Um, yes, you know, most large competitors to big companies, they trade market share. So for the next three or five years, you know, my share of shampoo goes up, but then over a period of time, if your competitors are really, really good, you know, they, they come up with new launches and they, they kind of pick a few market shares. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the real breakthrough really does come from somebody from outside the industry, right? The startups or somebody else that comes out with completely new business models. So yeah. for example, you know, um, we all know how, you know, if you take something like a Gillette razor, part of the disruption of what's happened there over the last decade or so 
is the online raisers and blade sellers, right? Yes. And it's not so much the product, it's the business model that's different. So, yeah. so if that, that competition is, you know, important, the competition coming from startups at the product level, the same should be true for IT data or shared services. Mm. We need to be benchmarking with the startup. Mm. And the reason for that was backed up by data once I got into it, which is startups had about a, you know, um, 50% cost advantage. So you take the cost of a transaction, such as, you know, creating an invoice. Startups were able to create that same invoice at about half the price of large companies. This is generic benchmarking. Uh, And of course, the second thing we all know is that the speed of decision-making, you know, startups Mm -hmm. are 10 times uh, faster at decision-making than their big company counterparts. And so you really need to then start to look at those as your true competition. And then you start to look at different business models. How do you do decisions and solutions in startups? And you aspire to that same efficiency. Um, If, if, if I have a couple of minutes, I could give a really quick example of that. Paul. Yeah, do by all means, Tony. I think it's a very yeah. relevant topic. The, um, the, um, the specific example, which I absolutely love because most people can relate to that, is one of you know, travel and expenses. So, you know, Paul, if you want to do a trip from you know, somewhere in Wales to New York in a large company, you, know, you would go to their travel agency. They would tell you, okay, we've booked your tickets, we've booked your hotels you know, create an expense report when you're done and, you know, eventually you will get reimbursed. Um, That's not the way travel and expense works in many startups or digitally native companies like Adobe or Google. You know, let's say you want to make that same trip, you would go into your company system and you would enter all of the parameters. You know, this is a five-day trip from this location to another location. And the system has data and analytics about all types of travel and stay and expenses it would come back to you, Paul, and say, all right, you know, your budget for this particular trip is I'm going to make it up 5,000 pounds, right? At that point in time, your travel and expense process is done, complete. You can book wherever you want, whichever airline. You can stay wherever you want, you know, Airbnb, friends, you know, five-star hotels. Um, If you have any expenses, use your corporate credit card. The data from the corporate credit card goes back and gets analyzed uh, for authenticity, for, you know, risk, for, you know, potential use or misuse of the expenses. Uh, You never have to create another expense report. Um, And the best part about this is you not only have eliminated the, you know, lovely uh, expense report, which we absolutely (laughs) hate doing. But you've also eliminated a lot of activity systems. So the back office Mm. that needs Mm. to compare your receipts Mm. to the actual claims, the procurement organization that has to cut deals with travel agencies, the need for a travel agency, the IT systems behind this. So here's an example of, you know, if you start to benchmark differently, your data and analytics can generate new business models. These are data-based business models. Mm-hmm. that replace physical paper, physical models, and physical ways of doing things. But the kicker here was that companies that move from the physical models to the analytics models, they not only have happier employees because, hey, you know, we would all love to make the own decisions about where we want to stay and where we want to travel. Yeah, absolutely. But 
the company actually saves 15 to 35 percent of mm. its global travel budget. And in large companies, that's hundreds of millions of dollars. And so yes. it's an example of if you benchmark differently, you work differently, you create completely new ways of working for the company. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it's a lovely use case example, as you say, Tony, because people can get their heads around why that would work um, and what a win-win it is. And, and how many people in a large corporate, particularly, of course, the leadership community, that will touch and will experience that? I could see it being a great advocate itself as a use case for this approach going forward, because you've suddenly taken away this pain of this bureaucratic expense system when absolutely that kind of data monitoring and that kind of automation of process makes it obsolete. So yeah, great, great example. Reminded me actually of lots of bits, your, your conversation there in why digital transformations fail as well. I know your mind must be on your more recent book much more, but the whole recommendation in there for in getting to the final stage of maturity when it's in the DNA of the organization and the stage before where you're looking at how you can manage change and whether it needs to be an edge organization or whether it needs to be um, at external help or whether it can be organically managed within the existing structure. There's lo lots of that good advice. So though Tony's going to be calling out probably mainly from his his more recent book, everybody, if if you're interested in that, there is lots of good wisdom in why digital transformations fail as well. But but Tony, I did I did read your latest book and I did really like it. Uh, and it did persuade me, if that's what you're looking to do, that there's an insufficient focus on process rather than product. And I was left thinking afterwards, even though I thought you'd probably get a lot of take up and, and plaudits for your book within the, the commercial community and the senior leadership community who could see how they could transfer their organization, transform the organization. What, what it really meant to the, my community, to the, the data leader community, and I guess particularly because product has become such a strong word in that community in recent years. Data product, sometimes misunderstood as a term, is, is thrown around a lot. And a lot of the best practice mindset from product development and how that's been transformed has found its way into the world of data science and other, other related work. Do you have a view what it would mean for our, to our listeners, for those kind of teams, to put as much focus on process, given they've just got their heads around, uh, we're all about product, that's what we're delivering, we're delivering data products. What does it mean for a data analytics team to suddenly go, actually, you know what, it's not all about product, it's about process transformation? <laughs> um... So the, the, the background on this, you know, product versus process, um, just to kind of zoom out a little yeah, bit, yeah, please um, do. Um, kind of goes back um, to a, a, a study that was done, I, I believe it was by McKinsey, um, mm. that looked at the valuation, so, you know, the worth of companies. And what they found was that companies that... Um, you know, put to market great products. Obviously, you know, they have a competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. But the companies that put to market great products and on top of that, they had great internal processes, internal processes such as finance, HRIT, supply chain, yeah. you know, so on and so forth. They had an additional one-third increase in the value wow. of the company, right? So in other words, um, you know, um, 
let's let's zoom out and let's pretend we are venture capitalists um, or yes. Wall Street analysts. Um, yes. The ideal organization is one that has great products, mm-hmm. but they are also super efficient in the way they actually sell their products, right? Mm-hmm. And now we can start to see why in today's world, companies like Apple, Amazon, and others just seem to be winning because, uh, and this is not a surprise, if you look, let's take one narrow example of supply chain. The best supply chains in the world, uh, according to Gartner's benchmark, are Amazon, Apple, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, and I think there's a fifth somewhere in there. Um, And so these are companies that do both, you know, user products as well as internal processes, as in finance, HR, so on and so forth. So now let's let's get back to the data and analytics community. Um, So the work that we do, uh, certainly, you know, as a data and analytics is to help our respective companies, whether it's Lloyd's or Procter & Gamble, to come up with better products for the company's users. Mm -hmm. but on top of that, I think you know what this study tells us is that don't ignore the agility and efficiency inside the company, right? The supply yeah. chain, the finance, yeah. and so on and so forth. Now, the point you made about you know the focus over the last few years in thinking about data tools as products by themselves, mm-hmm. that is actually an interesting phenomenon because that, what that says is, look, if you as a data analyst think that your job is to enable somebody else within the company to succeed, then essentially you're becoming a bureaucrat, right? (laughs) Because you're telling your business leaders, hey, you come up with the good ideas on what support I can give you. And I promise you, I'll try and be as efficient as I can, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. However, the better model, which we all know, is one of an open market mindset, right? Yeah. What if you, as the data analyst, thought that, no, 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 no. You know, I may be creating lots and lots of solutions, but I can be a little bit of a internal small business owner myself, right? Yeah. I can think of the work that I do as delivering products, right? Yeah. Um, I can think of those products as having competition. And competition, in the case of data and analytics, may be apathy, maybe lack of adoption, maybe better products from other analysts, maybe you know, internal change resistance. All of that's competition, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what this does is it opens up our minds to say, pretend like you are product owners, you are business people. Right. Mm-hmm. And then once you do that, you will motivate yourself to be always on your toes. Um, you're going to act not as a bureaucrat, but you're going to act like a small little startup with the hunger, with the agility and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. which is why I think that whole evolution is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes good sense. And, and why data and analytics leaders would want to focus on the efficiency of their processes as well. If, if they are there competing, as, as many data analytics teams are, also with lots of promises from external suppliers, they exactly. need to demonstrate that they don't just have the incumbent monopoly position and the knowledge of the organization, but they can more efficiently deliver automation solutions. They can more efficiently deliver 
you know, quality data where it's needed to transform processes and and bring an innovative consultancy type service in, in delivering that within the organization. So I, I wholeheartedly agree with you, but I think it's neglected sometimes, Tony. There is a, as you say, I've never quite heard it put the way you, you have as a bureaucrat, but there is a danger of seeing oneself as an order taker rather than an equal seat at the table as part of the senior leadership team to transform the business. Yes, I, I, there, there is a real danger in there. And, and again, it's, it's not unique to any one community, you know, data and analytics or, you know, maybe an IT person or a finance person or whatever it is. But, you know, the reality of, of the way businesses operate is that most of these functions, you know, so let's take finance as an example, um, are, are internal monopolies, right? Yes. Um, finance yes. is the only function yes. that can close the books. They, you know, they yes. can tell you how to get stuff done. Um, and, and, and that's, that's fine. I mean, you know, that is required, but the mindset of mm. thinking, no, 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 no. The process of how I close the books is equally important. I need yes. to be super efficient, you know, back to your earlier question. I need to benchmark myself. Yes. You know, I need to have the mindset of a nimble, scrappy, highly efficient little startup. Um, that's the game, you know, that's that's how you deliver sustained competitive advantage. Yeah, you yeah, know, well, well put, uh, uh, it's impacted me even more in this conversation how much your concept of that open market accountability is, is mindset. It, it's mindset and accountability, even if no one else is actually holding you accountable. It's it's to do with the mindset with which you approach your work and the difference that that will cause. Mindset can be absolutely transformational, completely agree. The, I want to move our conversation on, Tony, to also think about that portion of my listenership, a word I seem to make up and use, um, who are a bit earlier in their careers. When I've looked at the data, it seems that about half the people who listen to this podcast are sort of peers of the people I have on as guests. They're leaders of data analytics and data science type functions, but about half are quite early in their careers. So no doubt, and I've heard this from a few listeners, they're looking to kind of pick up tips from people who've succeeded. What, what should they develop? What should they learn in order to get on and succeed in their career? You come from the unique voice, really, of someone who's much more the senior leadership position, even though you've had some closeness to data and analytics. What would be your advice, given all your focus on process transformation as well as digital transformation. People who are starting out early now, they're pretty convinced they want a data career, but they want to make sure they develop the right skills along the way. What would you encourage them to develop as skills? What do you see them as needing for the future? Um, so um, a couple of things come to mind. Um, well, the first one is, um, you know, to develop um, you know, what I call the opposable firms um, <laughs> skill set, which is, you know, uh, two somewhat complementary but contradictory skills um, on the left brain and the right brain, right? So, yeah. and I think that's really important in today's um, world. So, uh, what I mean by that is you certainly need the analytic skills, the, the technical capability mm -hmm. uh, to be able to do magic um, with mm -hmm. what is essentially you know, one of the most exciting technologies to have ever um, come uh, to, to us as mankind, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
But please don't stop there. I think the other opposable thumb that's needed there is the, the, the right brain creativity, the art of the possible. You know, what can I do with this, right? Uh, and that's really where, you know, understanding business context, understanding, you know, we talked earlier about design thinking and techniques like that. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, develop your capabilities so that you can go back and forth between the art of the possible, the creativity, and the actually, you know, getting it done skill set, right? And that's really, really important in my career. I, you know, obviously we all start at the bottom, um, uh, but I tried over a period of many, many years to go back and forth between, you know, just hands-on dirty type of roles and then staff or creative roles and then back into hands-on dirty type of roles, right? Uh, so that's one thing that I would share. Um, the second thing I would share is that, um, you know, um, realize that, you know, ask yourself, what business am I in as a data analyst, right? Mm -hmm. Am I in the business of, um, you know, technology or am I in the business of uh, essentially use cases, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I strongly believe that, um, you know, technology is going to evolve. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so data and analytics technologies of today are incredibly exciting. But we know that if you look at the stages of evolution of AI, mm -hmm. we are probably at, you know, stage 2.5 out of eventually four stages where robots yeah. are going to, you know, not just have the emotional capability, but the capability to um to, to essentially think like humans, right? Mm -hmm. So technology is going to evolve. What you want to do is you want to understand that if you are in the business of helping you know, your company, yourself, the world, get to a certain stage, technology, your current knowledge is only going to be a tool. You want to invest yeah. in continuing to learn about the evolving technology, but then also about the other opposable thumb, which is change management, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think asking yourself the question, you know, what industry am I working in? You know, what am I trying to do is a very important question. Yeah, no, good, good, good point. And I like that focus on use cases. You've called it out a few times, and I guess there's there's a lot under that heading. It does include that creative thinking skill it does include the domain knowledge it does include people and customer empathy and design thinking you know there's many skill sets that that sit within learning that craft but but i agree with you it's it's a neglected craft and it's a good a good one to call out particularly as something that someone like you sees as a, a primary purpose that the technical skill is almost secondary. The primary purpose is that you can identify and deliver use cases. So well put, Tony. Thank you very much. It has been great to have you with us today, Tony. Genuinely a privilege. Uh, many thanks for your time today. Oh, my pleasure. I really enjoyed that conversation, Paul. I, I, I think we are at a really important inflection point in the world mm. in data and analytics. And having followed the work that you do and, and you know, your tribe does, um, I cannot emphasize how much of a privilege it is to, to be able to talk to you all.
Great. Thank you very much, Tony. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope that you found that helpful. I hope you can absolutely see why I thought Tony's voice was, was important for our community and that you continue to listen to the Customer Insight Leader podcast. More great interviews coming up. And there's also regular fresh content on our blog, customerinsightleader, or one word, .com. So please check that out too. Before then, it just remains for me to say thank you once again to everyone for your time. Have a great week. And perhaps you can reflect on the key themes that Tony's left with us there, importance of that use case thinking, the power of design thinking, the potential of not just delivering data products, but improving processes, particularly with that different mindset of who you benchmark yourself against. Plenty to imagine, plenty to go and change. For now, have a great week. Bye for now.